I've been looking for somebody to come onto When Belief Dies as a conversation partner on a more regular basis for quite a while now. And I'm delighted to announce that Daniel, the gentleman on this podcast, is going to be becoming a regular on the show. I've got a date book to and Daniel um, every month now for the next six months um, just to have a back and forth and to begin to dive into some of the subjects that I touch on with my guests regularly. Having guests on the podcast is great because I get to hear a wide range of views and opinions and to really push people into explaining their worldviews more effectively. But rarely do I get to talk about my views and rarely do I get to have a real in-depth conversation where I can look at these things from a... Uh, almost down the pub vantage point where you could sit there with a pint and you know a good conversation and with a good friend and actually explore why you think certain things in a non-judgmental non-confrontational way so in this first conversation with Daniel where he shares about his story and why he left Christianity I hope you'll hear in this conversation the beginnings of something fruitful where we're going to be able to challenge each other as the episodes roll by to have more honest conversations in the future. And I hope it helps you, listener, to begin to work these things through yourself, to begin to find your own Daniels for your own journey, to begin to have conversations that are challenging and honest and reflective on who you are and what you believe. Enjoy. Welcome to When Belief Dies, a podcast honestly reflecting on faith, religion, and life. This podcast is all about listening. We want people to share their reasons for faith or their reasons for non-belief so that we can better understand what has or has not convinced somebody of the claims that different religions profess. This is a journey, it's not a destination. And I'm really excited to have you listening with us each week as we delve into different viewpoints from different parts of the world to try and uncover the truth. Enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of When Belief Dies. My name's Sam, and today I'm joined by Daniel. Daniel, it's great to have you on the show. Yeah, fantastic to be here. So thanks very much for having me, Sam more than welcome mate it's um it's been a long time coming i almost feel like it's just like it's so good to finally be here recording this i think um so yeah, after a few months of chat- chatting it's been great yeah 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 so for the listener's sake just to kind of give give them a bit of background uh to us i guess um so i yeah. i've i've been uh well we we worked together for about four or five years ish um at the place that dave used to work at who was the gentleman at the very, very, very beginning of this podcast that some people might have listened to if they started back then, which is probably not many people now. But um, <laughs> basically, it's 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 really it's really good to have a conversation again with somebody who has um, worked in a Christian charity, who has believed in God, and then who's gone through a similar sort of questioning process. Um, so yeah, it's just great to have you on the show, and I think as well, it's really important the listener realizes that um, Daniel, you're going to be with us kind of on on a, on a month by month basis now, like coming in for for an episode every month. Um, we're hoping this conversation is going to become a bit more of a um, an exploration together as we kind of like discuss things back and forth, which I think will be a nice touch. But yeah, how how are you feeling about it? Yeah, yeah, no, very excited, very excited. Uh, uh, it was it was really funny, as you say. You know, we've worked together for. A number of years and then sort of had gone our separate ways and then you put something on facebook saying oh i'm going to be 
appearing on Unbelievable. And I thought, oh, that's, that's cool. I wonder which atheist you'll uh, be debating. And uh, was then uh, amused to find your blog and go, oh, wow, okay, there's someone else who's been on this very similar journey uh, separate to me. And it was someone that I knew. Um, and that was that was really exciting because I think for many people who sort of go through this this kind of journey, you feel like, oh, I'm the only one going through it. And so to actually see someone who I knew um, going through this journey was, yeah, just really exciting. So yeah, it was great to reach out to you and start having these chats. So we're looking forward to seeing sort of the, the conversations we're able to have in future as well. Yeah, yeah. It's from 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 the chats we've had, it's going to be good. I think it's going to be nice for the listeners to kind of have that. Um, I mean, this this is this is what I've missed. I mean, I absolutely love how the podcast is at the moment where I get a guest on, I ask them a few questions and they kind of go off on one and I kind of gently kind of like steer it a little bit. Um, whereas I, what, what I think is going to be nice about these is eventually we'll, we'll kind of get to the point where you're pushing me on stuff as well and I'm pushing you on stuff and we can really get into the nitty gritty, which I think will be really nice. Um, yeah, absolutely. But I'm kind of aware that I think it's important as well for the listener to understand who who you are a little bit, Daniel, and a, and a bit of your story and stuff. Um, so I guess to kind of jump straight in, if, if you're happy to, um, would you mind kind of walking us through a little bit of your story and kind of where you are today? Yeah, sure thing. So, yeah, I guess um, obviously I had uh, I had grown up in a Christian home. Uh, so my parents were both Christians uh, and we had... Uh, and I was brought up in a charismatic church up in Fife in Scotland. And, you know, I, you know, this was sort of the Pentecostal uh, kind of style, you know, praying in tongues, um, words of prophecy and these, this sort of thing. And, you know, I, I went along with that um, as I was growing up. But kind of around 18, I had started to really get into theology. And, you know, one of the senior pastors there was a great teacher and uh, ran some training courses got a copy of Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology um, uh, books by Tom Smale uh, a, a book on church history as well which which also proved really really intriguing to me and and I started to to question some things I, I was sort of thinking like actually what I was reading in the bible and what I was seeing in the church didn't seemed to always match up and you know it seemed like a lot of the time people were going for what they wanted to believe rather than actually is is there a way to properly understand the truth that what what we should believe and so yeah so I, I started to to question uh, a lot of things back then and what it, it it led me to was I started visiting a whole bunch of churches around the area and I kind of found the same thing nearly in every single church. There was not one that I felt like was really grappling with the hard and difficult questions that sometimes the Bible presented and that I was sort of engaging with in these theology books. Um, and I, I was, you know, I helped out um, in, uh, on a Christian forum online. And one of the guys I knew on there was Eastern Orthodox. And he suggested, well, you've tried all these churches, you know, Protestant and Catholic, have you tried Orthodoxy? And so he pointed me to an Orthodox church in Edinburgh, um, which I went along to, and I absolutely loved it. Um, it was so different in terms of style, and that 
that took a bit of adjusting to, but at the same time was kind of intriguing and exciting. But what I've I found there is that, you know, they they really did actually really focus on their teaching. You know, they introduced me to a lot of the early church fathers. So I was reading Augustine, Athanasius, uh, Tertullian, and uh, so many more. And 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 they had you know a really good mix of people who were from all around the world who had come to Edinburgh for studying or various other purposes, and a lot of Scottish people as well who who went to that church. So it's a really good mix, and you know you kind of feel like you're part of the church right across the globe and right across time as well. You know, orthodoxy likes to think that it's held on to the original Christianity and for me, especially as I was reading church history and understanding more about how the church had developed over time and where it was now, that that was that was really attractive to me. And so I kind of had, you know, this reformed half of me that was building through the study of theology and also this sort of orthodox uh, side as well. And so this was my personal Christian project to try and find this timeless Christianity that that was true, not just the cultural Christianity that I found around me. Um, but yeah, uh, eventually I, I moved down to Bradford um, and that's obviously where uh, we met and uh, I was working at a Christian charity there for, uh, it, was, it would have been a good eight, nine years um, by the time that I eventually left Bradford. And yeah, so when I arrived in Bradford, I had this had a similar journey in terms of I was looking around a number of different churches and still struggling to find like one that really that it felt like they were teaching the Bible in all its fullness. And I tried some Orthodox churches there, but a lot more of them were for a single sort of cultural community and didn't have many locals in it and so you go along to the service and I barely understood a word <laughs> it was a bit unfortunate but I I eventually um I was chatting to a friend and he said oh man if if you like you know your proper biblical theology and these sort of things you want to come to my church um and so I went along it was a, a tiny church just recently started but they read they what they did is through every Sunday service, they, they just worked through a book of the Bible, chapter by chapter. And over the course of their entire time as a church, they will cover every single book, every single chapter, every single verse, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and engage with it honestly and rigorously. And I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> I, you know, this is, this is, it shouldn't be groundbreaking. This is what I've been looking for this entire time. I thought Christians read the Bible and study it and, and, and meaningfully hold to it. And this was the first church that did that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I stayed there for, you know, it would have been a good six or seven years. Um, and, you know, I really enjoyed my time there. Uh, it was, you know, I, because it was a small church as well, we had a great community. Um, and there were things that I, I struggled with at first. And ultimately, this, this would come into play with 
sort of how um, eventually I, I would go down a different path. But um, yeah, so, you know, they taught the Bible in its fullness. And part of that was, you know, understanding the book literally. Now, by literally, that, that means understanding it as the author intended it. So if it's poetry, you read it as poetry. If it's narrative, you read it as narrative. If it's a, you know, a pre prescriptive doctrine, you read it as a prescriptive doctrine. And you don't mess those up. So it's not everything is literal, as in, you, if you were there with your eyes, this is what you would see sort of thing. Um, and, and they took that seriously. Um, but also, you know, there were things um, and such as, in particular, um, I was always sort of, you know, growing up uh, a, a feminist and, you know, always believed that men and women are, you know, fundamentally the same. And it's more or less how we as society sort of uh, enforce gender roles that really changes us. Um, there's not, not such a massive difference. And then in this church, they sort of taught a, a complementarian sort of viewpoint. And the, the idea behind that being that, you know, just in the same way that, you know, in God, in the Trinity, you've got the Father and the Son, and they are equal, but they play different roles, just the same as in human relationships in terms of uh, husband and wife and men and women in leadership in the church. They're equal but they play different roles. That's sort of how we would have described it. And I, I, I struggled and I pushed back on that for, for quite a time uh, and various other sort of beliefs. In the end, you know, one thing which I was challenged on is that, you know, this entire journey, I've been looking to find out what God actually taught, not what I wanted to believe. And actually, you know, to a certain extent, I was challenged by the fact that, no, I should, if, if the Bible does teach that, and there was justification for that in various passages of the Bible, and it didn't demean women, or, or, or how we would try to phrase it and how we would try and really push difference in role, not difference in value, um, you know, I eventually sort of subscribed to it in submission to my god uh, that was how i viewed it um and really pushed along there so uh, and that became quite important late on um but so that was so that was just sort of a, a smaller independent sort of evangelical church and uh when i eventually got a different job i had uh, a job offer in london and I moved down here where I, I still live now. And it was a fantastic opportunity. So I really jumped uh, at the chance and started going to what was uh, an Anglican church uh, in central London, uh, quite a big one. And, and likewise, it, it, was, it sort of had that evangelical sort of uh, side to it and was recommended to us um, by our, our former pastors. So it was, yeah, yeah and it was, there that I started to um, go through a, a, a few more of these questions and still in this aim to try and understand God and the Bible properly. It, it, it didn't really work out. <laughs>
Yeah. Okay, that's really interesting. So you, you, you're you kind of painting this picture or taking on this journey where you're um, looking at the kind of way that you found God almost within this sort of like orthodox church or at least found a kind of an understanding of Christianity which made sense to you and then hmm. kind of moved to Bradford. I'm just saying this, please tell me if I'm getting anything wrong, um, just making sure I'm understanding it. and then moved to Bradford, um, found a church that was, you know, literally going through the Bible and working things through, probably having quite honest conversations about a verse that seemed a bit kind of difficult or yeah, challenging. Yeah. Um, and then after that kind of began to not necessarily give up on your kind of convictions before you kind of engaged with the text, but um, began to, settle those in a sort of um, I'm going to listen to what my leaders and the Bible is saying and begin to kind of lay down my sword and almost accept what, what, I, what I need to do and then move to this sort of like an Anglican church when we moved to London um, and then that's where things really began to kind of start bubbling away and kind of more questions came up so I wonder if you can kind of um, help us to understand what it was like for you on like a kind of a week-to-week -week basis was was so for, I kind of I, I was I, what I'll do is I'll set it in, in how it was for me and you can kind of go, well, no, that's wrong. Mm. This is what it was like for me. So for me, it when I began to question, I began to see Sunday as a refuge, as a point where I would go to church to be able to be refilled or encouraged in something that I was struggling to hold on to throughout the rest of the week. And then kind of much later on in my deconversion I realized that actually Sunday was an extremely difficult time which actually made the whole process unravel really quickly when it when it did start unraveling fully um, but to start with it was almost that refuge of I need to go to this prayer meeting because it will help me I need to go to this because it will keep me in so what was it like for you what did church look like and your engagement with it yeah uh, I it was a little bit different uh from that because you know I think um in, in terms of how it went you know because I'd always you know taken this quite you know um when I say roughshod or um just rough and ready sort of approach to the bible like tackling it full-on you know struggling with questions was not something that was new to me like it was sort of uh oh I'm, I'm going through a stage where I've got doubts and I've I've not figured this out and then I'm struggling with it so you know for a lot of the for a lot of the early days of sort of some of those doubts I, I still went to church quite normally and you know even when I I kind of had flipped there was still this surreal like it was about six months where I I didn't tell anyone uh anyone about um the the fact that my doubts had got to such a point where I didn't actually hold to it anymore um but even then like the the community's still there and there, there were still people that I liked and I wanted to spend time with and so it kind of went from you know I'd be sitting there quite becoming more and more skeptical of what I was hearing and you know picking you know I was bad enough before yeah um i was the last person you wanted in your congregation uh, i never said anything to you but i knew exactly <laughs> i i had i nearly always had a couple of quibbles or questions on the back of it um but that that just got more and more and but the people i i really enjoyed uh i love spending time with so you know a lot of that that period was was quite surreal and it was only later on um 
near the end of that when it, I was feeling more and more uncomfortable not telling people and feeling like I was living a lie that, you know, I, I, I left more quickly at the end, you know, made the excuse, oh, I just need some fresh air. It's quite hot in here and, you know, go outside. Um, and especially like the songs, you know, they, they just, there was this particular song that was just going around at the time. And uh, I'm going to be honest, it was musically uh, not the best song. <laughs> and and the lyrics were, were just, he will hold me fast. Um, over and over and over and over and over again and you know it became more and more painful to go but he's not held me fast he's he's you know i either i'm i've i've been completely wrong this entire time or he has let me go and that was always the the the, the struggle through that so yeah it was uh, and especially when i stopped going I, I realized just how much I, I missed the people and I missed that community. It was something that for my entire life, I've always had a, a community that I'd be part of every Sunday. And it's part of the rhythm of life and losing that was, was bigger than I, I probably realized when I was going through it. So yeah, like, I guess partly because my faith had been sort of this own personal journey and I'd had to be through so many churches and I'd only just become part of that church about a year earlier it, it maybe wasn't quite so much of a refuge but yeah that's a bit how I experienced it so helpful I think um you know just kind of reflecting on the place that we used to work um it's mm. um it's really interesting because I think for lots of people, so it is, it's almost like it is a church and charity. It's, um, it's got the same sort of vibe and the same sort of feeling to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's full of quite young, like, you know, people from the age of like, like 19 to you know, 27, 28. That's like the, the sort of demographic. I mean, it, it is definitely getting older as people don't leave. They just stay there. So it's now like, you know, 30s to 40s. But um, it's still got that sort of like, we are young mentally sort of vibe. And I think, you know, I've I've now not been there at that place of work for a year and a half, and um, and it's this, it's the same feeling about church that I have. It's that I, I I kind of miss those friendships, those conversations, those there was just something strange within religion where you could be exceptionally deep and real and talk about things that you would just never normally talk about, like you know, random things like you know, different addictions or um, problems with lust or whatever it is, like you know people might say like lust isn't a bad thing now which is absolutely fine if you think that but um you know if i'm married and i'm lusting off someone else i need to try and like check myself and keep myself like being faithful or whatever and it's that sort of like there was space to have those conversations which is actually quite rare and i think you know i kind of look back at those times and almost miss the um miss the community and do you do you do you miss that community do you miss the church community and and if you do do are you are you in mourning for that have you have you kind of grieved that and you've moved on or are you finding that somewhere else yeah, no, that's, <clears throat> I think, you know, that is something that not only Christianity, but nearly every religion does really well. You know, it creates that that common bond that sort of brings people together. And obviously, um, yeah, the thinking that God doesn't exist, it's not so much of a common bond, is it? <laughs> it's, it's quite a weird thing to, to uh, group together around. Um and, and yeah, 
the the community is is probably what really hurt the most like losing that and 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 not just losing that but sort of feeling like everyone you know that if you go along or you see them they're going to smile like they're they're going to be happy to see you while at the same time you're the other now you're on the outside you're different and either they're saddened by your loss of faith or you know they're afraid you're a threat now you you know a lot about their faith but don't believe in it and so you know that puts them on edge or you know so so many other things that actually made it uh, and obviously when you're going through the journey of deconstruction how you think about christians can be all over the place uh from day to day as as i definitely experienced so um yeah i think that 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 loss was was probably the biggest thing and if i could go back in time and or you know give advice to anyone else going through that you know for me it was still um that was still my main community when i left and i would have loved to have probably just spent the time it doesn't need to be around atheism or anything like that or deconstruction or just any other community that you can feel a part of that isn't based on your faith or anything like that that's going to help when some of those changes happen I, I that would have been the main thing i could wish i could go back in time and tell myself to to sort of set up that community around me before leaving the old one so yeah This is huge. So, I mean, you know, I don't mean to make this all emotional or anything, but um, like, this is something that I'm still really emotional about, right? I'm like, I went for a run mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago and I was thinking, how can I put this into a blog post? Because I kind of want to like talk to my old church and talk to this old place where we both had and kind of write something along the lines of like, I, like you called me a brother and you weren't there when I was drowning. You promised you'd look after my children and you haven't spoken to them in two and a half, three years. Um, it's just different church that we kind of moved on from and stuff. And, yeah, you know, yeah. I, 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 I thought I meant something to you. I thought there was something more to this relationship than just this in, in or out box. It's like, you know, voting for Brexit, either leave or, or remain. And I ticked leave and you ticked remain. And because of that, the ships are kind of parted and they're, and, they're, and they're never to come back together anymore. And I just noticed things, even when I post things on Facebook about kind of uh, deconstruction or deconversion or whatever it is, like I'll get a, a, a single like or something from sort of like maybe uh, somebody who is not a religious person, but no one will say anything on any of the videos or the comments or anything. But then I'll get messages into my messenger, like Facebook Messenger or, or WhatsApp or whatever. Yeah. People go in, I'm really struggling. And I don't know where to go. And it's just this this horrific note, like noticed realization that there are so many people who are completely lost. They're terrified and they have nowhere to turn because if they begin down this road, they look at people without being rude, Daniel, like you and me, and realize that you become something other. You become an outcast. You become something that's not wanted anymore. And people don't know how to make friendships with you. They don't know how to encourage you. And then I see someone posting about a podcast that might be, to, you know, that's only been going for a few months that only has a few listeners, but everyone loves it because it's about God. 
Whereas a podcast about doubt or these sorts of conversations, like honest reflections on faith, um, they, they don't want anything to do with it. They won't comment on it because it's it's going against some sort of grain that shouldn't even be set within them. But uh, the sort of community structures that we have enforced um, seem to hold these things in place. Um, yeah, I don't really, don't really know where I'm going with that, but it's just a very, it's still a very painful thing. I think I've, I've forgiven everybody, but I haven't, I haven't actually settled the pain yet, and I don't know. I don't know how to do it. It's it's a really hard one. Yeah, uh, I mean, I I think it takes. Uh, I mean, I can't I can't give you masses of advice on this one um, because yeah, I you know to be honest, I I was more the one that that withdrew, that that just cut off uh, any ties. Um, I I found it too painful. Um, because you know if it, it it was a very cruel twist of of my faith that to a certain extent if you if you rejected me then that was kind of what you should do because you know i'm i'm you know uh, to give you an example uh, a good friend of mine we used to have uh, the same hobby and we would go uh, play badminton uh, quite often uh, and eventually he he stopped going and uh, when I asked him why he said well you know we were getting to know these people but whenever I tried to bring up the gospel it it wasn't going anywhere and you know if um, you know I much rather invest in friendships that I know will last for eternity within uh, within the, the church or, you know, if, if I'm going to try evangelize something if to someone, if I don't think that's being productive for the gospel, then I'll only try for so long. And for me, there was this constant fear now going back that, you know, as much as he said, oh, I would still like to meet up and talk. And we, we have now, but there was always that fear of, well, how long is it going to be before I'm not really productive for the gospel? Um, and sort of, uh, and knowing that every relationship will change for, especially if people are really deep into that, you know, strong Christian culture, um, that sort of more fundamentalist beliefs. Um, and I think uh, the more and more I've reflected on it, you know, even before this journey, I had a very bad view of people who were, who called themselves atheists, you know, uh, that in my mind, that was basically Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, which, I mean, bless them, they, they sometimes say intelligent things, but most of the time it just feels like they're mocking uh, people who have religious beliefs and sort of insinuating that they're stupid and I hated that and I you know for a long time I didn't want to be that person as well I I really resisted the idea that I, while at the same time having real disagreements with my my former faith and having real problems and I you know I think I try and recognize that half the reason that people are like I don't want to come near you is part of that you know, you you are something scary now, because there's sort of that. If if you could fall away, then 
I could fall away from my faith as well, then that that's a scary prospect. And so, yeah, I, I think I have empathy for those that that do want to stay away, but at the same time, it is still it's still painful in the process, and I can't say I've figured out how to really have strong relationships with Christians, especially, you know, the Christian friends I had um, in, in the past. I, I think the one exception has been with my parents where surprisingly going through this process has made my relationship with them stronger than it's ever been before. Um, but um, in all other cases, it, it's, it's been a real challenge and I can't say I found a way through it either. So, yeah, no advice for me, I'm afraid, mate. Hey, I want to take a minute of your time to talk about supporting when belief dies. This will always be an advertisement-free podcast, and for that reason, I hope you will be willing to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe to the podcast in your favourite podcast app and check us out over on YouTube. Finally, I want to ask you to consider supporting the show financially. You can support the show on Patreon with a monthly gift or a one-off donation via PayPal. Everything that you give goes directly towards running and improving the blog and podcast. Take a look in the description for all the links and thank you for supporting the show. Right, let's get back to this week's episode. No, it's it's super helpful. I think it's just it's just really good to hear honest reflections on this stuff. And I think what, what I find weird about it, and then we're going to get back onto your story. Apologies for going down this random random rabbit hole, which is fine. But um, it's it's this weird idea that essentially it isn't you; it's the identity that you latch yourself onto. It's like almost like there's you here in this frame, and there's this thing here, and we're going to latch onto this. And if that's gone, there's nothing to latch onto, so you're done. And it's this weird idea that you know, within a church, everybody there is going to be worshipping a different Jesus. Like we all, every Christian believes they're worshipping the same Jesus, but actually they're not. Their idea of how Jesus communicates, who Jesus is, when Jesus will and won't act, um, it's all attached to something that's different to the person next to you. Like if, you know, if it's a room of 300 people, you've got 300 different Christianities essentially being lived out. Um, and they're not, they're not just individual paths within Christianity. They are different understandings of God and how we interact with God and all this sort of stuff. And I think... It's just weird that, you know, within a place of work like that, or even at Bible college, when I was at Bible college, there was so many different people with so many different versions of Christianity that you would um, see who were able to just get along because they all believed in the same God, whatever that means. But actually, it's it's just an idea. It's just this thing that we've created, which is why I kind of mentioned identity politics. I think quite a lot of the identities that we give ourselves within the world in general are just what well, they are, just creations, aren't they? And I know that we're going to get into philosophy at, at, at length in, in later episodes for sure. But um, so, yeah, we'll kind of park that identity thing for now. But the kind of bit I want to draw away from it is um, we create something to latch onto, and we think because they're a Christian, we're in this boat together. And actually, when you stop and realise... I'm on the other side of this now, you realise that we're all just people and we just create narratives to grant us hope and meaning. It's, it's just really, it's really confusing. 
Um, what I kind of wanted to push into, Daniel, and I mean, feel free to pick up that, that tangent and carry on with it or, um, or or add to it. And then kind of, I would love to move into the sort of, um, you kind of mentioned the, the, the role of women within Christianity, but I kind of would like, like to hear a little bit more about the, the other elements that really got you to kind of go, okay, this is too far. Like, I cannot carry on with this being the way it's been presented within the faith structure that I, I had believed in. Like, what, what are those things that kind of, bubbled to the surface or, or took over that, that made it impossible to carry on? Yeah, I think um, it, it broadly went down sort of two strands. Um, the, the sort of technical aspects and sort of some of these ethical uh, aspects al- alongside it. So the, the, the technical aspects was, you know, there's obviously the classic of how do we understand Genesis? Um, it's, you know, every, uh, everyone is, is constantly asking this question when you're a Christian, because, I, and it's not just how do we understand Genesis, but how do we understand the New Testament's understanding of Genesis and what that determines for our understanding of Genesis? It, it's a really complicated picture because, you know, I, I was, you know, I was reading Genesis and going, I, I don't think it's a wrong position to say, well, actually, this, this book was probably written during uh, exile kind of time, a Babylonian exile kind of time. It makes sense in terms of some of the almost poetic language, especially, you know, it talks about the, the greater light and the lesser light to talk about the sun and moon, because it's, it's sort of taking a dig at Babylonian creation myths and and other sort of structures there and part of me was like it does like there are elements of this story which do seem to tell uh, a story which is more mythological that's more sort of theological communication uh, as opposed to if you were there with your eyes this is precisely what you would have seen and I, I kind of, that was always my inclination. And, you know, I would turn to the likes of St. Saint, uh, Saint Augustine uh, and his book, The Literal Meaning of Genesis, where he sort of, he, he doesn't give an answer, but he just sort of unpacks all these sort of questions that could possibly be there in, in Genesis and sort of say, it seems that if we hold this to be sort of that literalistic method, it, it doesn't seem to work. Well, at the same time, You've got um, Paul, and uh, if I remember correctly, I think Jesus does it once, where referring to Adam, and because there's one Adam, sin entered the world through one man um, and exited through um, Christ, it it sort of creates an importance on this singular representative of mankind being one man. Uh, and you know you could kind of push it but it never quite felt legitimate I could never say I could accurately read Paul as he was intending himself to say well Paul could have believed that it was mythological but also went to Genesis and then went but I think it's mythological and you know I and as I grew in my you know, nature and, uh, and science has always, you know, fascinated me. I, I you know, I love 
weird and wonderful facts about the world. And, you know, I've got an amazing documentary on mushrooms that I just recently found, if you want to see it, absolutely fantastic. Um, but things like, I asked my, uh, I asked someone once who was sort of far more literalistic in, in their understanding of Genesis, like, what about the anglerfish, right? Because did the anglerfish exist before the fall? <laughs> and, you, you know, because his argument was, well, before the fall, there was no death. Uh, and so, you know, effectively everything was a vegetarian. Uh, and, and so the anglerfish used its light to find seaweed or something like it's, you know, it's this big, nasty, massive jaws beast uh, and God created it and it's good. Or it just didn't, it didn't like, there was a big cognitive dissonance here that, you know, when I tried to theologically hold this together, I mean, I, I really struggled um, because part of me was still, you know, so many of these different facts of evolution uh, are proven the theory adds up and, you know, can uh, work incredibly well and make incredible predictions. So, you know, this is really solid stuff. I'm, I don't see how you could really deny it, but my theological understanding of the Bible is leading me in one direction. Um, but then added to this, you know, I was already questioning sort of how in particular Paul was using Genesis and there's a particular passage i think it's um i should know yeah galatians three sixteen, um where paul talks about the promise given to abraham and he's making a, a great theological point here that you know um the we are not saved by the law we're saved by the promise and that promise was given to abraham and fulfilled in christ so the theological point Paul was making here was absolutely fine by me. It was great. Um, the problem I was having is, you know, there are particular ways that I, I believe that we should read the Bible and, you know, to give it the proper theological term, hermeneutics sort of sets out sort of, you know, things like, you know, we try and read it with the author's intent. You know, you read the obscure by the unobscure, you, you consider what is the underlying principle and what is the custom of that particular time period, these sort of tools that help us interpret scripture properly. Um, but Paul in this passage uh, says, oh, and you'll notice that God said um, to your offspring, not to your offsprings, um, except that it, it doesn't. <laughs> Like the Hebrew term is ambiguous at best. And, you know, the whole point of Abraham was he was called Abraham, which means father. And God changed his name to Abraham, father of many, before he even had any children. And this was, you know, the whole point of the promise is, you know, your, your children will be like the number of the stars. You know, you will be the father of many and that 
was part of the promise. And so what Paul was doing here to me was just surreal and unnecessary and, you know, hermeneutically questionable. And uh, just, I couldn't see how I could start to understand the Bible as a whole while re respecting what, what Paul was doing in that in, in passages like this. Um, and that was, that was really the, the technical point that I started to really have trouble with, in particular, Paul and sort of his authority and his teaching and how he was reading things into the Old Testament that didn't seem to be there. And that seemed problematic to me. Yeah. I mean, a big thing for me was Philippians and this idea or this realization that there's a good chance that Philippians is actually two different letters that have been jammed together to produce one letter. So um, if you actually read it through the kind of tones and the way and the intent and the things that Paul says in the beginning of Philippians and the end of Philippians, don't coincide particularly well. He's saying things in the second part, which he almost kind of alludes to or answers or has certainty of in the first part um i won't go into examples here there's quite a few blog posts I, i'm happy to share if people want to know more about it but it, it's just really interesting where when you actually begin to um, look at critical scholarship of this stuff um you begin to see some kind of big questions that haven't ever been answered but then you read like more conservative pastoral sort of like commentaries or whatever it is you think you know i'm reading or picking up my bible speaks today or whatever the New Testament for Everyone by N.T. Wright or whatever. These things have got really interesting facts in them, but also they kind of skip over these these bigger questions because people don't want to be critical of God's word. But when you actually begin to be critical, you, you can really ask some questions that there aren't easy answers to. It's um, it's worrying, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, and they are hard questions. Uh, they definitely are. And, you know, I think for me, that, that, was, that was part of it. Like, I was... I was trying hard to try and figure out this, you know, true Christianity, this this timeless Christianity, and uh, and read it as authentically. And I was wanting to take it seriously, and it was so disheartening to really try and engage with the fact that it seemed like the, like I was trying to read the Bible in a way that the Bible didn't read itself, uh, and that really started to cause a lot of problems. Um, this, the second um, sort of area was obviously sort of more along the ethical uh, lines because, you know, as a, you know, as a, as a Christian, obviously I, <clears throat> uh, I did have certain views and obviously we, we covered one already, you know, I kind of had submitted to God and sort of believing in complementarianism and these sort of things. Um, but obviously, another big one um, was homosexuality, which is, you know, a really big sticking point for, for a lot of Christians uh, around how do we engage with it? How do we really think about it? Um, and, you know, the, the position that I held uh, was, you know, I kind of, once again, 
I didn't think I could really quibble with what the Bible was saying. I'd read a couple of people that had tried to flip it one way or flip it another, but it never felt authentic. It, it didn't feel correct to what the text said. Um, I, I couldn't go along with that. I felt that once again, it was people trying to create the God that they wanted rather than the one that was presented to them uh, in the Bible. At the same time, I always tried to, uh, and I used to get angry at because I'd started to walk in some of these more conservative Christian circles. And, you know, one of them said, oh, you need to be opposing gay marriage. I didn't see the point in that. Um, you know, it, it, it always felt to me like I, I did notice there was a difference between those of us that went, okay, I mean, God has outlawed it. But it was no, it, it wasn't a trigger for us. And those Christians who were actually just disgusted by it and then used the Bible as their weapon to be able to say, see, it, it is wrong. Um, I was always really uncomfortable um, with, with a lot of that. And especially as I'd, you know, as I'd moved into a secular workplace, you know, it would, I'd not even been there for a week and, uh, you know, someone handed me a cupcake and it's got rainbow icing on it. And then they say, oh, it's, it's for the pride parade. And I'm just stood there going, am I allowed to eat this cupcake? <laughs> um, you know, I, I, uh, and, you know, in it, I was always conflicted because, you know, in particular, like one of my big heroes is, is Alan Turing. Um, amazing mathematician, computer scientist, you know, someone who changed the way that World War II went, um, an absolute hero. And how was he rewarded? Well, with the, the awful act of chemical castration for the crime of, of homosexuality. Uh, you know, it's uh, heartbreaking. It really is that such a guy was ever treated that way. And I, you know, I, I can't stomach that. So I was always caught in this. Once again, I was submitting to God in terms of, okay, that's what you've said, but I'll accept that. Um, and then once again, you know, I was effectively, I was, I was reading uh, a book by Caroline Criado Perez uh, called Invisible Women, because, you know, as I work in various art, it is a policy. Um, it's, it's an incredible book that looks at, you know, how sexism doesn't just exist as this overt thing, but it's more in data. And especially when policies are being made by men, you know, we make assumptions of what's you know, women are the same as men. And so therefore, you know, if you've got 20 women and 20 men, you need this, the same number of bathrooms. But actually that's not quite true. And actually you need to consider these different aspects. And so once again, I, I started to, to reconsider sort of how I believe, uh, I believed in that. And what can I say, you know, when, these secular colleagues ask me about my faith and ask me about these difficult questions. What, what's the proper response I can give? And 
and this was so these two sort of strands of thought were, were sort of going on side by side and uh, so as each as one doubt built uh, it sort of bled into the other uh, and they were sort of going going down these two areas um and that was pretty tricky especially on the ethical side because obviously you know and i would hold that this is logically true that if god exists and god is the moral authority if you think he's wrong it doesn't really mean much he's the moral authority he is the creator he's the one that decided what's right and wrong um but obviously you know it was more the risk that he didn't exist that was growing in my mind that that sort of balanced between these two things really interesting such a hard hard thing to answer if somebody says to you you know like well what do you think about these policies with um these kind of like data um qualitative and quantitative ideas about x y and z and you've got to kind of go away and go um i don't know i i don't want to admit to this kind of like uh this almost sexism that is in within me like and i don't even know about and actually i've got to try and work it through in a in a non-Christian and a Christian way and then begin to kind of work that out. I, I can't, I can't, I, I've, I've never really had to go down this. I think the kind of the, the closest thing that we've had mm. recently at, at my place of work is the sort of, um, you know, inclusion, diversity training, um, kind of making sure that we're all on the same page with how we view people in general. And um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting because there isn't an easy answer to this within Christianity because it's, you, you, you know, all, all are one in Christ. Um, there's neither Jew nor Greek nor Gentile. We're all, under Christ or potentially outside of Christ, it's um, it's strange. Yeah, and and you know, just to take an example, because this was a, you know, as part of my, okay, I need to, uh, I'm, I'm going to carefully reconsider uh, this. You know, um, obviously one of the key passages that sort of relates to women is um, Numbers chapter five. Um, which um, uh, nearly every atheist is aware of um, more than any Christians. But um, yeah, in Numbers chapter five, it, um, it talks about a, um, the Israelites. Uh, so they're just about to enter into the promised land and they're given a number of laws. And one of those is that if a man suspects that his wife has committed adultery, he takes her in front of the priest, uh, the priest, um, there's a couple of other things, but the main thing is that he mixes together some of the dust from the tabernacle with some holy water, mixes it up into a concoction and gives it to her to basically eat, stroke, drink. Um, and if she has committed adultery, what will happen is she basically, the, the symptoms are described as um, her thigh will fall away, her womb will spell. And, but if, if she hasn't, then she will go on to, you know, give birth to children. And the tricky thing is that, you know, I was reading this passage and I, I could deploy every hermeneutics uh, trick in the book, basically, you know, there's a number of things we can turn to, you know, they're just about to enter into the promised land. 
And if you look at the passages around it, you know, they're all about holiness. And that's what is really emphasizing, you know, the Nazarene sort of ritual and even, you know, people with contagious diseases getting quarantined, you know, happening before it was cool um, in 2020. <laughs> um, and then you, you, you get to this and you think, okay, well, first of all, it's not just any dirt. It's not just any water. It's dirt of the tabernacle, like the most holy place. Um, the water is holy water. Uh, and so the whole idea is that obviously if she has committed this sin and this defilement, you know, all the symptoms, you know, this is, this is not a pretty passage. It's, it's not something comfortable, but, you know, the symptoms are based around basically where the defilement has happened. Um, and it's the holiness coming into contact with this defilement that's causing this response. And God's in complete control of this. And so therefore, the, the passage holds. And so long as you believe in God and you hold that to be true, there is a way you can kind of hold that passage together using you know, the full historical context, the full understanding of what, what's going on there, and you, you don't need to chuck it out. And I was aware of this, and I could read it that way. But obviously, you know, part of me was starting to really doubt because of these technical problems. And I looked, I looked at it again and thought, well, if God isn't real, and I'm, you know, and at some point I'm teaching or endorsing or validating this passage what am i validating and you know when it describes these symptoms now the thing is is that this passage is old from a point in the story which is historically dodgy um we don't know whether it happened or or not but if we do assume okay this is something they did and it seemed to work sometimes uh, at least you know, what we're describing here is her whim swells right after she's presumably just had sex. It's, it's, a, it's a forced abortion. And, you know, whether, you, you know, if you're pro-life, it's ending a life. And if you're pro-choice, it's against a woman's will. This is, this is ticking no one's boxes here. This is a, a really difficult passage. And, you know, I guess... As much as no Christian like is walking around carrying this out, at the same time, it's still part of that moral makeup that that, that Christians are relying on um, in order to to sort of understand the Bible, or at least those Christians are actually going through the Bible and really engaging with it in this sort of way. And you know, it in the end, it was. Um, a passage in 1 Timothy that um, eventually sort of um, pushed me uh, to the edge and and was like as much as, you know, I'd look back now and I can't, you know, trying to make sense of all this, sometimes it's a bit tricky. <laughs> it, it kind of ebbs and flows and then you look back and you go, am I just storifying this for myself rather than this is technically how it happens? But I think... I remember this moment in particular. It was um, uh, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, 
um, where it talks about uh, women uh, teaching, not teaching in the church. Uh, and Paul gives sort of two key reasons for this. Um, uh, he says, you know, he says women should be submissive and they shouldn't teach in the church. After all, Adam was created first before Eve. Uh, and this, uh, you know, this is something that as a Christian I would have called, okay, it's called the created order, you know, God, man, uh, and then, and then woman. And once again, I would have turned to, it's, it's okay, consider, you know, God the Father, God the Son, you know, equal in value, just different roles. Same thing here, man and woman, equal in value, different in roles. And if Paul had just left it at that, I probably would have gone begrudgingly, okay, but he didn't. He takes it one step further again, and uh, and this time goes. Um, and Adam was not deceived, but Eve was deceived, and became a transgressor. Um, and I was like, "Hang on." So, so basically, like the two problems I was having just collided in this one passage where once again Paul's sort of putting something into the story of Genesis that I was kind of like well it says Adam was with her and and I always stood by the fact that no Adam should have stepped in at this point and gone no this is wrong I'm, I'm going to defend what God has told us to do and he failed and and they failed together in in both their roles like it's not that Eve was worse than Adam and yet Paul seems to, it, what is, I would grant, an obscure verse. Like there's not a clear and easy way to read this verse. Um, and that's, that's part of the problem. <laughs> like, you know, I was sort of going, and because it, it then talks about, you know, um, where women will be saved through childbirth. And it's literally like two sentences long. And you've just gone, okay, so you've just given this massive reason out of Genesis and somehow sort of tagged on this thing about salvation for women that is separate, but literally by one word. Um, could you not expand on that? You know, you've left us in a very difficult spot. And what I kind of, you know, there's not a clear way to read it, but at the same time, sort of, considering how Paul had used this pattern of what is true for Adam is true for all mankind. And the fact that he was making the distinction between men and women, and therefore the distinction between Adam and Eve, seems like what is true for Eve is true for all women kind. And I was, I was going, that, that can't be true. Like you can't, like the, the implicit argument, it's not explicit, but the implicit argument is that women will be dece deceived and therefore bad teachers. And I questioned myself and I said, well, is there any empirical evidence to say that women are more easily deceived than men? And I, I hated the fact that I was even asking this question, but I did actually look it up. and hoping to find just a study that went, yeah, we, we tested it, no. Um, but what I, what I found was um, a study from Berkeley, California, 
um, where it's a bit a bit of a complicated study, and it was a while since I've read it, so forgive me if I don't quite get the details right, but the, I, I definitely got the gist, um, and we'll communicate that accurately. But basically what they did is they set up an experiment with a buyer and a seller, and the, uh, the seller could choose to use deceitful tactics in, in their in their selling, uh, and the buyer could, you know, challenge back. But they would they would do some negotiation. And what the study found was, yes, women are more likely to be detrimented by deceit uh, in this study. But the reason, the question is why. And the two two things that they found was that, you know, one, you know, women were just as likely to pick up on the deception, but were less likely to challenge it. They, they, they didn't feel like they had to, the authority to challenge it and to question it. You know, they, um, and the researchers sort of said, you know, they were, they were more submissive. And the second reason was, you know, the sellers were more likely to try and employ deceitful tactics against women. And the researcher said, you know, as much as, you know, no one consciously and explicitly said that they think women are more easily deceived than men, it was their implicit bias. And so, the, and that was the study I found, and I didn't know whether to laugh or cry at this point, but um, what I found was, you know, why are women more easily deceived? Well, it's because they're told to be submissive and people think that they're more easily deceived. So Paul, what have you got to say about women? Oh, they should be submissive. <laughs> and this weird implication that they might be more easily deceived. And this, this was the point where I'd started to really go, okay, I, I already had this with, you know, how, you know, as far as I was concerned, like, homosexuality had no real bearing on any naturalist ethics like it didn't damage society in any real way um no they don't make bad parents you know no, there's no problem <laughs> there really isn't um and yet it was like this moralistic this theistic morality that sort of made this distinction and in this case you know i was sort of going this is really problematic i'm i'm struggling here because it seems like this theistic morality was actually damaging when i looked at it, things ethically and so you know and that and that was really you know things i eventually you know i've i've got different arguments now that i would use and perhaps are stronger than these ones which i sort of went through as i went through that journey but that was really the point where you know if you'd asked me before if I knew God was real, 100%, I would have said, no, I can't know that for certain. But if, you know, living a Christian life wasn't that bad, it, it was pretty comfortable. I quite enjoyed it. I had an amazing community. I, you know, there were a few things, but not much. And at the end of the day, it's like, oh, I flipped a coin. And if it came up that God wasn't real, I rot on the ground. Who cares? And all of a sudden, it, it, it wasn't that anymore. And it was far closer to an image of being at a roulette table 
and putting it all in one number. And actually the, the ethical sacrifices weren't mine. You know, I'm, I'm straight, I'm a man. These, these aren't my problems, but if, you know, what if I had a daughter and she decided she was attracted to women? How much damage could I do just so that I can make my bet on God? I wasn't happy with that. And, you know, you know, I was at the roulette table and they weren't my chips that I was gambling with. And yeah, that was basically when I kind of flipped from being a Christian with questions to starting to say, actually, no, I don't think I can believe this anymore. And started to question more as to, well, if God's real, he's real. I have to settle, I have to handle the implications. But in the end, I didn't find much. So yeah, that's, that's kind of the main part of the story. Wow. That's, um, it's beautifully said. I think um, I kind of want to push in and go into kind of where you are now and I'm aware you've kind of said you've got other arguments and stuff, but I think I think those are conversations, and I said those, those are conversations that we should um, that we should save for next time um, so we begin mm. to push further into this. So, um, yeah, yeah. Is, is, is there anything else you want to say, Daniel, before we draw things to a close? No, I think that's that's probably a good place to leave it for now. For now, for now, and yeah, for now, we've we've got plenty more. <laughs> no, it's more. Yeah, no, hundred percent sure of that. And I think that's why I'm really excited, mate, to um to begin yeah. begin this journey with you to kind of talk every month or so and um and, and push into this more and more and more and and go down different tangents and rabbit holes and explore this stuff. I'm really looking forward to someone pushing back against me as well because I think I'm um I'm almost like floating on like the surface of the sea and kind of just going with where wherever the waves and the conversations take me. But I think, you know, having you listen to the podcast and uh, you pushing mm. me on these things is going to be really, really helpful as well. So um, it's a really exciting journey and I'm, I'm delighted that you're going to be going on it with me, mate. So yeah, it's, it's going to be great. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. To leave any comments or thoughts, you can head over to YouTube. And to follow us on social media, or to see where else we are online, hit the link in the description. Thank you to all our regular givers for making this dream a reality. I'll catch you here at the same time next week. Enjoy the journey.